Hello and welcome to the Eating Disorder Therapist podcast. This is a podcast to help you find peace with food and overcome disordered eating. And I'm Harriet Frew, aka the Eating Disorder Therapist, and I'm so excited to share with you all kinds of stories, tips, information and guest interviews to help you on your journey in finding peace with food. So thank you so much for listening today and I'm very excited to have a guest today on the show and I'm speaking to Sarah Dussange who is a psychotherapist and author of the book I Can't Stop Eating. Now Sarah is very well known on Instagram as the binge eating therapist. You may be aware of her already. So Sarah is an experienced therapist who has specialised in treating people with binge eating disorder. She is a strong promoter of health at every size and positive body image. And Sarah runs one-to-one therapy sessions as well as group programmes for clients. And also she offers her expertise about running groups for professionals. So I'm really excited to be speaking to Sarah because she's somebody that I've known from when I first started out on Instagram. So I feel I've kind of got to know her a bit, but we've never had the chance to have a really good conversation. So let's get to the interview. Hi, Sarah, and thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Hello, Harriet. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm very happy to be here. So Sarah, could you just tell all the listeners just a bit more about who you are and what you do? Yep. So my name is Sarah Desange. I I go by the moniker the binge eating therapist, which works on two levels. One, I'm a therapist who works with binge eating. And two, I'm also a therapist who has struggled with binge eating. So now I'm kind of on a mission really to help others who are struggling with binge eating. So that's what I'm doing at the moment through seeing clients and also through putting things out on social media. Hey, thank you. So Sarah, could you tell us a bit more about your sort of journey with your relationship with food and how you sort of got to the point that you are in today as a therapist? Sure. And a lot of people ask me actually if I became a therapist because of my binge eating recovery. And actually that wasn't the case at all. I think I became a therapist when I was so lost and I was still in my eating disorder and I was looking for meaning and I didn't think I'd be working with eating disorders. And then as you probably had a similar experience we have to have our own therapy to train Mm. to be a psychotherapist so I really did the work on you know recovering from binge eating probably around the same time as I was training to be a therapist but so my story with binge eating I think for me it started as so many people I speak to it started with a diet so I was about 25 and I'd noticed over the last couple of years I'd gained a very small amount of weight. And so I decided to go on a diet and take the weight off. And I thought I was just being prudent. I was just being careful. I didn't think I was overweight. I just thought that I wanted to nip it in the bud while I could. So, and this is something I see a lot of people having similar experiences with, is that that first diet you go on when you're committed to that first diet tends to be really easy. I don't know if you found that kind of with clients or people that you've worked with, but quite often the first diet seems to be easy. And then it's almost like something changes after that first diet and subsequent diets become harder and harder. So my first diet I went on, I only lost a couple of pounds and I was happy with that and I was going to just leave it. But then after that diet, I just couldn't stop eating. It's going to sound so bizarre, but I lost a few pounds and the reactionary binging after that diet was so distressing. 
and it set up a cycle of binging that saw me gain a lot of weight very quickly. And then after about nine months, I started purging and I became bulimic for a few years. And then I managed to get the bulimic behaviors under control and I was binge eating for a few more years. All in all, I think I struggled for about 10 years. And I mm. see that the catalyst as being a diet and some hormonal things that I was going through at the time. But mm -hmm. almost regardless of the catalyst, everything I was thinking and feeling about my binge eating is exactly what I'm hearing people telling me that they're going through today. The psychology and the emotional journey was the same. Mm. So sometimes the catalyst might be different, but there's so much similarity in what people are experiencing and thinking and feeling with this problem. So Sarah, can I just ask you as well, that first diet that you went on as well, was it, because it sounds like quite quickly you got into cycles of binging. So, and when you look back on that first diet, was it quite a sort of a harsh, extreme diet? Well, actually it was one of these hypnosis things that you do that, so it wasn't even particularly prescribed rules. You just do a hypnosis and you're just supposed to eat when you're hungry and stop the minute you're not hungry. It was basically the hunger fullness diet. That was why I thought I was being so smart about it. And I felt like at the time, I felt like I was mentally free. And then at the end of the diet, well, at the end of this, I went on an all-inclusive holiday and I stopped listening to the hypnosis, gained weight during that holiday, the all-inclusive holiday, I couldn't stop eating. But I wasn't worried about it at the time because I thought, that's okay. I'll just do the hypnosis thing when I get back. Mm. But it just didn't seem to work after that. It was like a switch flipped in my brain and it was so sudden. And mm. then I started to get scared over the next few weeks when it was just getting worse and worse. Mm. Yeah, no, so interesting, isn't it? And I think it's just so interesting how even just like one diet can so disrupt our relationship with food. And we almost want to kind of, it's impossible to almost get back to the other side of the river almost, isn't it? Once you've experienced dieting, it does just kind of change your whole mindset around food. And you might want to go back to just feeling quite relaxed, but it's very, very hard to do that, isn't it? Exactly that. And I've, I liken it actually to, now I've never done cocaine, but apparently the first <laughs> time you do cocaine, that initial high you get, you never mm -hmm. reach again with subsequent use. So people yeah. are constantly chasing that first high. And I think it might be a bit like that with the dieting. So there was, it took me years to accept that I, it sounds like strange wording, but that I couldn't diet because every time I tried to, it, it was such a problem for me because of that first time when I managed to, I kept using that as evidence. I should be able to, I should be able to. And that just causes the spiral of feeling like you are repeatedly failing over and over again. Yeah, and no, I think it's so true, isn't it? I think so many people describe that almost kind of honeymoon period of the first diet. And then you, I think you almost do become a bit addicted, don't you, just to trying to get that feeling back. And you feel very seduced by the promises of that early diet, I guess, and those feelings that you had in the very beginning, even though I guess they're just not sustainable. Well, exactly. That. And it's reinforced by everybody around you, right? Because you lose a little yeah. bit of weight and everybody's telling you how amazing you look. So that is just contributing to this high that you've got from feeling like you're so in control. You've mastered what everybody else is struggling to do. Mm, it's so true. So Sarah, as well, when you look back, I know we just were talking just off 
before we came on the podcast and you were sort of saying that in a way before you went on that first diet you didn't think you had well you didn't have any issues with food you know you had a relaxed relationship with food it wasn't really um, an issue do you think when you look back did you have any issues with kind of low self-esteem or anything that may have made you a little bit more vulnerable that when you started dieting it could have gone in a sort of unhealthy direction yeah, I definitely think like my psychology made me quite vulnerable to it. I'm very, my natural temperament is to be very black and white, all or nothing with my thinking. And I think that was a big part of it as well. So it's that swing between I have to do this brilliantly or I'm doing it terribly. So that idea of my eating can't be good enough. Like I was doing so much last supper eating, which I don't know if your audience have heard you mention last supper eating at all, but it's that idea that you know that or you think that tomorrow you're going to restrict or you're going to start the diet. So you just inhale everything you can now because that scarcity mindset's in place because you are absolutely convinced that from tomorrow you're just going to be a different person around food. Mm. And that, I think, that psychology was was very me and that Mm. hooked in with me with the whole dieting thing, I think. Yeah, for sure. So you had that sort of susceptibility maybe a bit towards black and white thinking and then I guess... It's just disastrous in a way when that's channeled then onto dieting, isn't it? Because it's just so hard to win. Yeah, um. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Like, and it's the high and it's the low. And actually to give it up is about finding that middle ground. And when you're black and white and you're thinking, like the grey doesn't even look like it's there. It just doesn't feel like an option. So mm. sometimes I'll say, you know, if 100 is where you want to be with food and one is where you are now, what would a... 14 look like and a lot of the time anybody with black and white thinking is going to really struggle to answer that question because the brain's just not used to looking for it and doing that yeah no it's so true isn't it and was it true for you as well that even like would have the gray zone as well felt a bit sort of mediocre or kind of I don't know like you were sort of giving up in some way (laughs) this is gonna sound really dramatic Harriet (laughs) but I remember at the time thinking that like the middle ground felt like death it felt like nothingness and that sounds so dramatic and that's such a black and white way of looking at it which is kind of ironic but it felt like almost non-existence I I can't explain it more than that yeah it just didn't was not appealing at all yeah sure I was convinced that I could get to the high and stay high yeah Sure. Well, I think, you know, so many people listening are going to relate to that. (laughs) (laughs) So, Sarah, did you then, like, so after that initial diet, then were you kind of pursuing all kinds of different other diets or kind of ways to try and get back to that success, that first diet? Yes. So I did the, I I kept going back to the hypnosis one because I kept thinking this has worked before. You should be able to do it again. and it just wasn't doing what it had done the first time round. So yes, everything you can think of, Harriet, the, carrier, uh, the calorie counting, low carb, promising, oh, the amount of times I promised I was going to give up sugar forever. I've given up sugar forever so many times, probably thousands of times I've given up sugar forever. That was the big one. I don't know that I did that many structured diets. There was one or two. But on the whole, it was more a case of just telling myself that tomorrow... I was going to eat this way. And in my mind, this way, looking at it now, was pretty restrictive Mm. because it was all about trying to make up. And when we feel guilty about our eating, guilt kind of calls for atonement. 
So yeah. we think we have to correct. Mm. And when the correcting normally means trying to plan restriction, which is actually overcorrecting, and then you just end up swinging backwards and forwards. Yeah, that's just a horrible cycle, isn't it? So at what point then, how far into your sort of disordered relationship with food, eating disorder, did you start to sort of pursue help in terms of therapy or coaching or whatever else? So almost as soon as the eating problem started, I can remember telling the nurse at the doctor, maybe only four months into it, and I remember her weighing me, and because I had gained weight, but I was still in a medically in the normal range of BMI. I remember her saying to me, "Oh well, your weight's okay, and come back, come back to us if it come, goes up." Was what she said. So that was my first experience. After that, when it got worse, I saw a CBT therapist. I had seven or eight sessions with her. I did everything I was told to the letter, and it didn't change or improve. And I remember her saying to me, look, you're eating your three meals a day and your three snacks. You shouldn't still be binging. So I just felt worse about myself. I felt like a complete failure. And on the sixth or seventh session when I left the office, she said to me, Sarah, I really want you to try this week. And I can remember feeling humiliated because I felt like I was trying so hard. And it was just not a good experience. Then when I started purging and I had a diagnosis of bulimia. I went back to the doctors for help with that. And I, was, I saw a psychologist for a couple of sessions. And that was helpful from an educational standpoint. It really helped me understand a few things, but didn't make a difference to my behavior. And then when I started training to be a therapist, I had to go into therapy. And again, it was with therapists that had no clue about eating stuff. Mm. So my, ther- my first therapist suggested I did the 5-2 diet. Um, yeah (laughs) and so I've often kind of joked that I'm a therapist that didn't have a particularly great experience of therapy so Mm. I think my mission is to try and be the kind of therapist that I wanted for myself yeah so I feel like and I I don't know if this is necessarily fair but I feel like a lot of my recovery was kind of Mm self-recovery but I can't underestimate the fact that or I can't sort of not acknowledge the fact that I had five or six years of weekly therapy, which, if nothing else, really does help to increase your sense of self-awareness, which must have had a positive impact in some way, indirectly, I would probably say. Mm. So, and so interesting. So, Sarah, as well, when, like, when you look back to the, like, the CBT therapy as well, was that specialist eating disorder CBT or was it more general CBT? No, the CBT was by a woman who had recovered from binge eating herself. So she, it was a private CBT therapist who advertised herself as working with binge eating. So this was mm. her speciality. Okay. And what do you think like, as well, when you look back to that as well, because I, I know as well, you know, CBT is, there's so much research done on it and it's promoted a lot as the treatment for binge eating disorder. But, you know, we know it only really is effective for about 40% of people but when you look back on that now with your sort of wisdom and having made a recovery, what do you think was missing from that? Or was it about timing? Or what do you, you know, what do you make of that now looking back? I think one of the challenges around CBT for binge eating is that CBT is a very rational approach. And I don't think binge eating is a very rational problem. Mm. Food has so much meaning and it goes back so far in terms of emotions, even as far as like a baby cries, what's one of the first things you do? You try and feed the baby, right? When kids are distressed, they're often offered food as comfort. 
So there's this real association early on with food and feeling good and feeling better and connection and a lot of people's safety. People talk about food making them feel safe, like all these things that in your rational mind don't necessarily hold up to rational scrutiny. Mm. So for me, in a nutshell, I think compassion and I think connecting, I think you need to work on the shame actually, and that comes through connection. So I went to Overeaters Anonymous for seven months while I was struggling. And whilst the program didn't suit me, being around other people who'd gone through the same thing or going through the same thing and thought in the same way that I did, did so much to reduce the shame. Mm. And I think that's what's missing with CBT, possibly the shame work. And it can Mm -hmm. actually increase shame when it's such a rational approach um, Mm. to what isn't necessarily a rational problem. Sure. No, I mean, I really agree with you, actually, because I use some CBT in my work, but I almost see the CBT bit as almost like the surface level stuff, which mm-hmm. has value. But yeah, absolutely, you need that deeper bit, don't you, to the, and the emotional connection as well. It's just yeah. vital. Yeah. And just I might take a, I was going to say on the CBT side, I might use some CBT tools but I'm not a CBT therapist. So I think some of their tools or exercises can be quite good. And I don't want to completely knock CBT because I only see the people for whom it hasn't worked. If CBT's worked for somebody, then I'm not going to see them. Mm, Yeah, no, sure. And I guess it's that 40% statistic, isn't it? You know, for (laughs) some people, it does work really, really well. And I completely agree with you as well. I think there's lots of valuable tools to take from it. So yeah, you know, a valuable therapy, but it's, it's not all or nothing, I guess, is it? There's no, no. one perfect therapy, really. Well, exactly. And can I ask you, did you have CBT, Harriet? You know, very interestingly for me is I'd never actually had eating disorder therapy. I had more general counselling. Right. So, yeah, no. <laughs> I guess right. the answer to that That's is. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So can I ask you, Sarah, like in terms of like just talking then about sort of the deeper stuff and looking at emotions and early relationship with food. So is that something as well, do you think, as part of your own recovery, was it quite important to go back and look at some of your kind of earlier life experiences? And I guess one's not always necessarily related to food, but other things that may have happened over the years. Well, it's it's the idea, I think, But the way you do one thing is the way you do everything. So I can look at how I relate to food and could see how I relate to other things in my life playing out similar patterns. Mm. So those kind of patterns probably do get, you know, laid down pretty early. Morality was a big subject for me growing up. That idea of judgment and good and bad. I grew up in, you know, a very Christian household and going to church and all of that. So there was this element of always trying to aspire to, back then it was some kind of sort of spiritual level. Yeah. And a sense, I suppose, that I was always getting it wrong and feeling like, I mean, it comes back to this idea of sin and guilt, right? Mm. I mean, to turn it into a cliche. But people that feel so guilty about eating something, you know, it's right guilt here this belief that you've done something really wrong and the level of guilt you must see it in your work all the time Mm. does not befit the crime yeah so therefore that comes from something more archaic I would say yeah that capacity to feel that level of guilt 
just for doing something that perhaps comes with some sense of regret. So now I might eat something and feel a sense of regret if I, you know, it wasn't what I wanted or I might feel uncomfortably full after something or it just doesn't feel good in my body. But that's very different from how I used to feel guilty, like I'd done something wrong. Now it's just information. I'm like, oh, if I could go back, I'll make a different choice. Mm. But it's a very different process now. Yeah, no, sure. So it's fascinating, isn't it? Because I guess it's almost that projection of like, in terms of how, you know, from things that happen to you, then how you parent yourself in terms of being, I guess, extremely self-critical, very high standards, very conditional of yourself in terms of, you know, probably very hard to feel good enough. You had to be like meeting certain standards. And I guess when that gets put onto food and your body, it's a bit of a nightmare, isn't it? Yeah, and I felt there was this judgmental God watching everything that I did. So even any eating that no other person saw, you know, I knew and, you know, potentially this, even if, even if in my rational mind I didn't believe that anymore, you're sort of left with this felt sense mm. of, of, of being judged, even when there's no one around to judge you. So I guess it becomes internalized and maybe yeah. you become the one judging yourself. Yeah, no, of course. And I guess it makes sense as well, perhaps why as well, that your binge eating went on for a long time, because you were kind of just, you had this ideal, didn't you, of this kind of this perfect place that you were trying to get back to or get to. And yeah, you were just kind of going round and round in circles, weren't you? And I guess there was no escape from that guilt and judgment, was there really? You were just on this kind of horrible, like, never ending circle. Yeah. And one thing I did, you know, which I kind of, kind of makes me smile now when I think about it you know I decided that I was not going to do I basically put life on hold I was like I'm not going to do that I'm not going to do that until I've recovered you know my relationship broke down at the beginning of all of this happening and I was like I am not going to go out there and date until I've sorted out all my food issues so that idea of and I I see it a lot like people want to figure out all their food problems first and then start living this life that they hope to have. And quite often, I think you have to be willing to live this life that you hope to have before you can sort out the food stuff. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we're all a bit of a work in progress, aren't we? Not just with food, but everything. <laughs> and it's almost, <laughs> we'd never get into a relationship, I think, would we? If we're kind of waiting to sort everything out. Exactly. And I think I was quite intolerant of myself. So you mentioned like low self-esteem, like was my self-esteem low? Not consciously, but I'd Mm -hmm. set myself. And I remember people would sometimes say to me, oh, you're really hard on yourself. And I thought they were talking absolute nonsense. And now I find myself saying it to my clients a lot, (laughs) but I can see how hard they're being on themselves. Mm, Sure. Well, I guess as well for you in a way, being hard on yourself is just kind of a norm wasn't it because I I guess just in terms of certain things in terms of the environment you grew up in and you know maybe partly with a religion and that kind of judgment but in a way that was just your kind of normal backdrop for life wasn't it you know you didn't sort of yeah being a bit more compassionate and accepting probably just wasn't part of your landscape exactly accepting felt like giving up you mentioned giving up early and that was exactly acceptance felt like giving up and now to me acceptance is about being humble and finding peace. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I was very humble. I think mm. this eating disorder humbled me. Yeah. So it sounds like, Sarah, you actually pretty much, like you had 
quite a lot of input through various different therapies, etc. And you feel that in a way, indirectly, that maybe helped you. It sounds like your the majority of your progress was down to your own sort of self-awareness, was it your own sort of self-development and things that you were putting into practice? It was, I suppose, from I was reading a lot of things. I was trying to self-educate myself. You know, I found, I read the Intuitive Eating book back in 2009, I think I read the Intuitive Eating book. And at the time it had a profound effect on me, but because I couldn't do it well enough, I ended up thinking it wasn't for me and throwing it away and coming back to it a few years later. They often say, I think, what is it? They say something like, it's easier to try something new than to do something old. And I was always looking for an answer. You know, so I got very much into self-development and I was always looking for, I was convinced that someone out there had an answer for me. I just had to find them and get it out of them. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, a lot of that. Janine Roth, her stuff really helped me as well. I found that really useful. There used to be a woman who did a podcast and her name, I've never, I don't even know if it's still on. Her name was Renee something and the podcast was actually called Inside Out Weight Loss. So I know, obviously, in the title, it's kind of a bit weight loss oriented. But it was really about your relationship with food and your relationship with yourself. And she would do these little meditations before you would eat. And a lot of the stuff that, and it was really about freedom and about intuitive eating largely as as well. And I remember that really helping me at the time. There was lots of little pieces. As I mentioned, OA helped a little bit as well. And it all just kind of, gradually came together Mm. and I think one of the large last pieces was actually the letting go of the weight loss the desire to lose weight yeah and that for me is some something I have to regularly do because I'm human and sometimes you know old thoughts come back but I just keep letting it go because Mm. every time I start looking towards weight loss and looking to try and move in that direction my food my eating starts to become compulsive again I cannot do it I don't know yeah you know an easier way of kind of trying to explain what that is I just have to accept that which is one of the challenges and then also realizing that how I felt about my body fluctuates anyway from day to day so Mm. getting to a point where I'm like actually it's not my body that's the problem it's how I think and feel about my body that realization was really important part of my recovery as well and learning to spend time with myself because I was somebody like say before all this eating stuff I was somebody who was constantly on the go distracting socializing I just avoided spending time with myself at all costs Mm -hmm. and so learning to become more comfortable I should say it's not always comfortable being in my own mind with my own thoughts, that was only possible when I became more compassionate towards myself. Otherwise, why would I want to sit with a mind that was having a go at me all the time? Mm, so true. So it sounds like it was quite a sort of drip, drip process of recovery, really, was it? Over years, really, with lots of little things kind of coming together and sort of shifting you a bit more along that recovery road bit by bit? Yeah, I think so. I sometimes talk about I was in a semi-recovered state for maybe a couple of years towards the end of it. And one of the ways that I I think looking at recovery as a linear process is really unhelpful to a lot of people, especially those of us with black and white thinking tendencies. So I often Mm -hmm. say like any time when you are peaceful and eating intuitively and feeling free around food, 
you are recovered. You are in the recovered state. You may get knocked mm. out of it by something. And then you just, once you find your mind again, you're like, how do I get myself back into the recovered state? Because it's learning that skill that when you feel wobbly or when you feel derailed around food or body image, it's finding ways to get yourself back into that recovered state as opposed to it's this destination you get to. Yeah. When recovery is at the end of the road, I just think that's it's really unhelpful because you think when you get there, everything's going to be great. Or you feel like you're nearly there and then you have a really bad few days and you feel like you're back at square one and you've made no progress at all. I think looking at it as two states and just trying to get into that recovered state more often and accepting the back and forth that you just keep bringing yourself back, eventually you're spending more and more time in the recovered state than in the non-recovered state until that becomes more like your actual state. Yeah, no, so true. And I mean, do, do you sort of use a sort of cycle of change with your clients? Because it sounds like the way you're talking is very much in those kind of motivational terms of kind of moving through different phases of change and realizing, yeah, it's not an absolute destination, is it? And our motivation fluctuates. And But the more we are in a better relationship with food, the greater time we'll be kind of staying like in that recovered state or in sort of what they'd call maintenance in the cycle of change. Yeah, I'm not completely familiar with the cycle of change. I've heard of it. I know it's part of motivational interviewing, but it's not anything I've had any training on. Quite often, I'll start talking about my approach and someone, people have said to me before, oh, your approach is ACT. That's acceptance and commitment therapy. And I'm like, okay, then that's what it is. I've never done any training in ACT. (laughs) But that seems to be probably where I've ended up gravitating towards. And compassion-focused therapy as well. Yeah. You know, I'm sure you yourself draw on quite a few different approaches. Not many therapists out there now are purists in one approach, are they? Yes, it's true, isn't it? And I think so many of the therapies are saying the same thing, but in slightly different ways, aren't they? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's just language. We are. It's exactly it, Harriet. We're all saying the same thing. We're just using different words. <laughs> yeah. So, and what was your journey, like you said earlier, about becoming a therapist, you know, initially that wasn't really about wanting to support people with eating disorders it was more about am I right it was more about your kind of own journey and sort of awareness is that right yeah yeah it's a couple of years the first couple of years of my eating disorder I felt so purposeless and I was so unhappy and not I never you know actually had suicidal ideation but I often just did not want to exist living just felt too hard And then my mother passed away in 2010, which hit me pretty hard because, you know, I was very close to her. And then maybe it was a year after that, I happened to be walking past the psychotherapy and counselling training centre nearby where I lived. And I looked up and noticed the sign. And I'd never noticed this building before. And I I just Googled it when I got home and they had a a basic skills for counselling evening class so I thought I'll go and do that it'll get me out of the house that kind of thing and I went along to that and I just loved it I loved the people there and people were just talking about real stuff you know you know training's like everyone's exploring Mm. their process and I felt like I'd found my tribe it was just it gave me a new lease of life and it wasn't about that I never thought I would work with eating disorders I just thought well one I need to recover first and I don't know if or when that will happen. 
And then secondly, I thought, even if I do recover, what if it's too close to home and I just spend all my time projecting my own experience onto my clients and I'm no good at it? <laughs> sure, yeah. <laughs> but then I was offered an opportunity to do a placement, private eating disorder clinic. And after a lot of sort of, you know, discussion and supervision and all of that, I decided to give it a go. And I just loved it. I just, it just... And somebody, I, I tend to make decisions at an emotional level. And for me, it just felt right. Yeah. That's the only way to describe it. The timing was right and it just felt right. And I was always afraid about specializing because I thought you, you cut your options down if you specialize. But actually, I just ended up, first it was eating disorders I specialized. And now I only take on clients with binge eating because mm. I really feel like that's where my heart is. Mm. Oh, well, I'm so glad that you did specialise. You have specialised, Sarah, and <laughs> you're obviously doing what you were meant to do. <laughs> so how do you, Sarah, today kind of really kind of work to find that good balance with, you know, eating and your body image? You know, are there certain things that you kind of regularly, certain habits that you do or regular, regular practices that you do to kind of keep yourself in a good place? So... I had a moment maybe a month or two ago where I was lying down. I remember looking down at my body and noticing something that I didn't like. And I remember noticing it and kind of getting that feeling. Um, maybe, maybe you know it, Harriet. I don't know what to call the feeling, but the feeling that, you know, your body's wrong, something's wrong with it. And because I sort of caught the thought, or there was some awareness there of what was happening, I remember just saying to myself, like, this is the thought that's making you feel bad. It's not your body that's making you feel bad. My body wasn't making me feel bad in that moment. It was the thought. And so the, I think for me, there's something about, and this is why I think it's, for me, and let's talk about it from the eye, that's important for me is to spend time with myself so that I can, I'm reluctant to use the word mindfulness because that means so much to different people. But basically mm. that ability to watch yourself, to be the yeah. observer, mm. to not be fully detached, even though I am somebody who is guided by their feelings largely, to be able to say, just because I feel something doesn't mean it's true. Mm. Just yeah. casting doubt. Don't believe everything you think. Don't believe everything you feel mm. has been very helpful. So that helps get me back. And if I'm, if I'm feeling, I don't know what the word might be, but if I'm you know, starting to not feel good about some of this stuff. What I need is a bit of time with me. So I'll take myself off and I will walk or I will meditate and I will just, before I wanted to escape myself, and don't get me wrong, sometimes I do want to escape myself, but I know that when I move closer to myself, when I move towards the experience, it tends to sort of morph into something much less stressful. I don't know if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I think it makes a lot of sense. I think it's something that's so often overlooked by so many of us, isn't it? I think in um, our overpacked kind of busy lives, but actually, yeah, taking that sort of time back for yourself and just having time with your thoughts, it's just very grounding, isn't it? And it enables you to reflect and have insight and perspective. I mean, I know for myself, I'm quite a sensitive person and if I'm, and I'm quite an introvert and if I'm around other people too much, I really feel that need to kind of ground myself to almost know how I feel about things again. 
you know, mm-hmm. and, it, mm-hmm. and it's just, you know, it's a, it's a very important part of my own self-care, having that time out, having time for reflection and for thinking. So it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And it's tough because, I mean, you're, you're a busy woman, you work, you have a family to look after and, and all co- sorts of things like that. And I think sometimes you know, our lives are sort of set up as one long distraction, aren't they? So for some people, I think finding that time, but even if it's just a few minutes, even if it's just five minutes and having a mindful cup of tea, for mm-hmm. me, it's about an intention, an intention to check in with myself and just see what's there. Yeah. And I love I love a good cry. <laughs> I find it so cathartic. It's almost cleansing. So in a way, I can remember when I was really binge eating, I couldn't cry. The only time I could cry was in therapy and I used to just cry for 50 minutes sometimes. It was like, but on my own, I would feel like I wanted to cry and I couldn't because there's that deadened feeling that you get when you're so full up with food that by the time you've eaten and you've realized that what might have helped was to let this feeling out you can't you've already shoved it down and now you're stuck with this feeling squirming in you and you're full up with food and beating yourself up and it's just yeah it's quite hard to reconnect from that state Mm, yeah no very true and I think it what you're saying as well just setting the intention isn't it and having a bit of time and I know for myself I sometimes just up before everybody else to have a bit of time before you're bombarded with the demands of the day and it's it's just prioritizing that in isn't it almost as like I know for me now that's just become an essential part of my well-being having that time in and I think often we just don't realize how important that is do we you know might prioritize other things but we don't prioritize that real necessity really just to have some time alone for reflection yeah and I think people that struggle with food really do struggle to prioritize themselves I sometimes think of eating, it's a way of really internalizing your pain as opposed to externalizing it. So some people, when they're in pain, emotional pain or whatever, they lash out at people, they externalize and they push their pain outwards and everyone else has to deal with it. And I think people, particularly people that eat emotionally, it's almost like they are pushing their pain back in them to maybe even protect those around them. So a lot of people I've found who struggle with binge eating, they tend to be the caretakers, the obligers, the people that put other people first. And that I think is often a challenge for for many people when it comes to recovery, because that's part of recovery for a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. And it makes me think a bit of um, compassion focused therapy and just when people with eating disorders often spending so much time in either sort of fight flight place or striving and taking care of others and and not enough in that self-soothe place, which is such an important part, isn't it? Of the whole picture. Yeah. We're trying to look after ourselves in the way that we know how, right? (laughs) Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So Sarah, ask you now three quick fire questions. Okay. So what would be your last supper three-course meal? Oh, I would probably go for, there's this great restaurant in Tenerife that does this tuna tartar salad, which is with sesame, absolutely delicious. It's a restaurant called Old Fashioned, 1986. That would be my starter, would be tuna tartar from there. My main course would probably be Shepherd's pie, but according to my mum's recipe, with some vegetables. 
and my dessert would be probably a fruit crumble and custard. They're lovely. Yeah. Sounds delicious. <laughs> <laughs> Good hearty food, yeah. <laughs> and do you have a favourite quote or mantra? Oh, I've got so many. I'm always throwing them out at people. Um, okay, so two popped into my head. Can I have two? You can have two. Okay, thank you. So one of them is Wayne Dyer's, when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. Mm -hmm. I love that. That idea, the world is often a reflection of what's going on inside. And my other one that I really love is a C.S. Lewis quote. And he says, that, isn't it funny how day by day nothing changes? And when you look back, everything is different. I think that sums up recovery quite nicely for a lot of people. Yeah, no, really nicely. No, C.S. Lewis has got a lot of it's a really like, lovely quotes, actually. Yeah, that one I often think of. It always pops into my head. I love it. Mm. And can you tell us something about you that may surprise us? Oh, something about that may surprise us. I have a very strong, like, emotional aversion and physical aversion to milk in its purest form. I can't bear the stuff. So even if milk splashes on me, it makes me want to heave. Mm. And when I used to work at Tesco as a teenager, quite often, more often than it should be, really, when the milk was coming through, the milk would be leaking. And I would be sitting there literally dry heaving while I was trying to clear up this spilt milk. So mm. when they say so use crying over spilt milk, it probably <laughs> could make me cry to be fair. But yeah, I dislike it to a point where it almost makes me angry. Mm, interesting. <laughs> and is, is, that, is that from childhood as well? Like, have, you, have you always really disliked milk? Well, at some point I must have, because obviously, I mean, I was drunk milk as a baby and at some point I must have turned and changed my mind. My earliest memory of milk was at nursery school and I didn't like it there and I was forced to drink like a little centimetre at the bottom of the cup mm. and I can remember being about being forced to drink this milk at nursery centre. It's just like, is it liquid? Is it food? Like, what is it? It doesn't even look mm. like liquid. You can't see through it. It's just wrong. So... <laughs> So if anyone invites you around, don't bring out the milk. <laughs> yeah, and I'll have my coffee black, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so finally, Sarah, where can people find you if they want to get in touch, find out more about what you do, etc.? Sure. Well, they can go to my website, which is thebingeatingtherapist.com, or they can find me on Instagram. And my account name is also The Binge Eating Therapist on Instagram. Oh, and I have a YouTube channel, which you might be able to guess is called The Binge Eating Therapist. Mm. So any of those places, I'll be at. Okay, fantastic. Well, I'm sure people will be. I think a lot of our listeners know you already, but I'm sure people will be checking you out. Well, thank you so much, Sarah, for coming on the podcast today and for sharing all your wisdom and insight and story. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, Harriet. And well done on setting this podcast up. You're doing a brilliant job. Oh, well, thank you. And I'll see you over on Instagram soon. <laughs> <laughs> see you there. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye. So I hope you enjoyed this interview with Sarah just as much as I did. And do go and check out all of Sarah's details, which are in the show notes. 
you're not following me already, do seek me out on Instagram at The Eating Disorder Therapist. And for regular weekly blogs to your inbox, do sign up at rethinkyourbody.co.uk on my homepage. And if you sign up for the free body image leaflet, you will then get onto my mailing list. Thanks very much for listening. And I look forward to sharing another podcast episode with you very soon.